This month on Security Management Highlights. DHS was able to come up with some data, which found that in 2015, more than 527,000 individuals stayed in the United States after their visa expired. Homeland Security Editor Lily Choppa stops by to talk about how the Department of Homeland Security is trying to combat the problem. These events were interesting in that they featured tabletop exercises. World leaders have been preparing for nuclear disaster scenarios at various meetings, but is it enough to address the threat? Senior Editor Mark Tarallo explains. Women are generally underrepresented in leadership positions in information security. Assistant Editor Megan Gates gives us the scoop on the state of women in cybersecurity and what can be done to increase gender diversity and inclusion. Plus, Don Tausig, Director of Global Security at Lando Lakes Incorporated, stops by to talk about ASIS International's newly rebranded CSO Center. I'm your host, Assistant Editor Holly Gilbert Stowell, and that's all coming up on this edition of Security Management Highlights. With millions of foreign visitors coming in and out of the country each year, does the U.S. government have the ability to track visa overstays? Homeland Security Editor Lily Choppa is here to tell us more. Hi, Lily. Thanks for stopping by. Hey, Holly. Help us wrap our heads around this problem that the United States is currently facing when it comes to people overstaying their visas. What's going on? Well, it's pretty tricky to get a handle on the exact numbers of who's overstaying their visas because the Department of Homeland Security has no tried and true method to track whether foreign visitors have left the country. DHS was able to come up with some data, though, which found that in 2015, more than 527,000 individuals stayed in the United States after their visa expired. That's out of some 45 million foreigners who came to the U.S. through an air or seaport of entry on a business or tourist visa. So we have part of the picture, but people who traveled through a land port of entry or came here on a student or other type of visa are still completely under the radar. And since undocumented immigrants in Entering through land borders is such a big concern, the gaps in the data are pretty significant. So what is delaying the Department of Homeland Security from providing overstay statistics? And how is the Government Accountability Office involved? Basically, DHS has no proven method to find out when travelers are leaving the country. The overstay report they issued earlier this year has technically been mandated since 1996, but the department hasn't been able to collect sufficient data during that time. This current report is based on passenger manifest data from air and seaports. This has clearly been an issue for a while, and GAO has been reporting on the lack of overstay data for quite some time. They've issued a number of reports on the subject, and their most recent one, which came out before the overstay report was released, notes that Congress threatened to withhold $13 million in funding until DHS provided an overstay report. Guess that worked. You also write, there is a lack of overstay enforcement by the agency that's supposed to be imposing those rules, the U.S. Immigration and Customs Enforcement, or ICE. So what is hindering them from intervening when someone overstays their visa? Well, since we clearly don't know who exactly is staying here, it makes it even harder for ICE to figure out who to catch. The GAO found that ICE is in charge of determining which overstayers to track down based on national security criteria, but ultimately, overstay enforcement is not a high priority, and only a limited number of overstayers have been deported by ICE. 
they basically say they don't have enough manpower to intervene. So DHS says, you know, in order to curb this problem, having a biometric system would obviously be very helpful, and they're working on it. This system would collect facial recognition or fingerprint patterns in order to identify who's coming in and out of the country more efficiently. But we have yet to see that fully implemented. What obstacles is the department currently facing? This is probably the biggest roadblock when it comes to effectively tracking overstayers. For years, DHS has been working on implementing a biometric exit system at land and seaports, which would easily keep track of who's leaving the country. This system is already in place for people entering the U.S., but the GAO says DHS hasn't figured out how to collect this data in airport terminals without affecting the flow of travelers. Cost and technology are other hurdles of implementing a biometric exit system, and private biometrics vendors and associations have come forward to offer help, but note that DHS has no defined technical requirements, which makes it even harder to figure out what the right technology is for the task. Well, thanks so much, Lily. Thanks, Holly. 2016 is already shaping up to be a key year for global nuclear security. Senior editor Mark Tarallo talks more about the summits that have been held so far this year and what global leaders are doing to address nuclear security issues. Hi, Mark. Welcome to the podcast. Hi, Holly. Tell us, what have world leaders been up to already this year when it comes to nuclear security? Yes, very busy year for world leaders and nuclear security. There's been two major summit meetings already in the U.S. The first one was called Apex Gold. That was earlier this year. And basically, it was a minister-level meeting. So it was like head of energy, head of nuclear security, for all different countries. And the Apex Gold meeting was held back in January. Then in March, there was the 2016 Nuclear Security Summit here in Washington, D.C. And that was one of the summit meetings that are held every two years on the nuclear security issue that world leaders attend. So that was the actual heads of state attending the summit in March. Tell us about the tabletop exercises that are conducted during these events. These events were interesting in that they featured tabletop exercises. And the nuclear summit meetings, which happen once every two years, these are the first to feature actual heads of state you know, the presidents of state, the um, prime ministers who are really participating in the exercises. This first happened in 2014 at the 2014 nuclear summit. It was a success. And so they decided to do it again, first at the minister level at Apex Gold, and then again with the heads of state at the nuclear summit in March. And these tabletop exercises, the way DOE officials describe them as almost like an episode of the television show 24, where they give the outlines of a scenario. Basically, a country that borders your country has reported that some of its highly enriched uranium has gone missing from a civilian facility, and it's no longer under regulatory or government control. So what do you do in that situation? In these exercises, the ministers and then the heads of state had to react to the situation. What would you do? Who would you talk to? How do you communicate the information? What capabilities could you bring to the situation? And so a lot of good discussion and a lot of key points brought out from these exercises. Exercises. Excellent. So what were some of the key takeaways from these events? 
Yeah, there was definitely some key takeaways from those exercises. One was the importance of how to prioritize actions and decision making. The formula that these heads of state and ministers seem to agree upon is first you prevent, then you protect, and then you prosecute. So the idea is your focus is first preventing any harm being done from this unregulated, highly enriched uranium. Then if it has spread or you think it may have spread, do whatever you can to protect the population. And then once people are protected, then you focus on prosecution. Who did this? How can they be brought to justice? How can it be prevented again? That type of thing. Second takeaway is that really channels of cooperation between countries must be really well established in advance. So you can't have a situation where your neighboring country reports a issue. You don't know who to call. You don't know who to deal with in that person's government. You really have to have well-established communication before fact so you can draw on key contacts. You know how things work in, in their country and be able to work with them what's a situation develop. Third takeaway is that information in these type of situations will be in high demand. Obviously, the press will want information. People will want to know what to do. And so leaders have to make sure that technical nuclear information is made clear and understandable because people will want to know, am I safe? Where can I go? What's a danger area? And if a leader puts out a dense 10-page technical report, that's not going to be of much use to most people. So the idea is thought needs to be put into how information will be presented, when will it be presented, how can it be made understandable, that type of thing. And the final takeaway was that these exercises are very valuable. So not only, as I said, that the heads of state did them at the March nuclear summit, but they'll probably continue at future nuclear summits even after a new administration in the United States. You also write that President Obama recently requested a sizable budget increase for the U.S. Department of Energy's National Nuclear Security Administration, or NNSA. What does that stand for? What does that agency do? And how is the funding supposed to help? NNSA is the National Nuclear Security Administration. They're actually under the auspices of the Department of Energy, and they're charged with refurbishing and updating the nation's current nuclear stockpile. What's happened is that because of many issues, but really this goes back decades when there was a lot of public discussion in the U.S. on reducing the chances of nuclear war. And what you happened is when there was a lot of emphasis on disarmament, on mutual agreements where countries agree not to keep developing nuclear weapons. One of the results of that is that the U.S. nuclear stockpile is pretty much outdated. A lot of it is decades old. It hasn't really been refurbished that well. And one of the crucial issues there is that a lot of the stockpile is really aimed at being a deterrent, not an offensive stockpile, but to deter other nations from attacking us. So this budget increase, you can think of it as like part of the U.S. infrastructure, the way our bridges and roads are often updated and need help. The nuclear stockpile does too. And so this budget increase would be to refurbish the stockpile. 
And a recent Government Accountability Office report said the agency is running into difficulties with this nuclear modernization plan. What did it say? Like most government agencies, they use a lot of contractors and work with contractors on projects. And what the GAO report said is that for a lot of these projects, for a lot of these contracts, the NNSA hasn't really fully established policies for conducting oversight of the management and the operations of these projects. So you have all these contractors, they're working with the government. Oversight isn't the greatest. And since nuclear security is obviously a very potentially dangerous issue, that's a high-risk area. Thank you for explaining all of this to us, Mark, and for stopping by. Thanks, Holly. Cybersecurity workforce studies consistently show the number of laborers is down, yet women continue to be underrepresented in the field. What's being done to close the gender gap? Assistant Editor Megan Gates stops by to explain. Hi, Megan. Thanks for stopping by the podcast. Hey, Holly. Thanks for having me. In this article, you cite a couple of interesting reports, so I wanted to use those to help set the scene. What are some of the current statistics when it comes to women in the cybersecurity workforce? Yeah, I'm glad you said that because there were lots of great reports that I had to reference for this piece. I would not have been able to write this without them. So one of the main reports I used was ISC Squared's Women in Security, Wisely Positioned for the Future of InfoSec. And it surveyed 13,930 InfoSec professionals and found that women make up just 10% of InfoSec professionals. And that's been the breakdown, this sort of 1090 since 2013. So the number of women in InfoSec is growing, but only at a rate of growth equal to that of the profession as a whole. And so of those women who make up that 10%, just 9% of women are in leadership roles in information security, 13% are practitioners, and 20% are in a governance risk and compliance role. So the report found that women are generally underrepresented in leadership positions in information security. And these numbers persist despite a widespread worker shortage in InfoSec. So estimates that we'll have 1.5 million unfilled InfoSec positions by 2020. And they also mirror sort of the corporate landscape as a whole. I used a report by Lean In, Sheryl Sandberg's organization, and research that it's done with McKinsey to produce the Women in the Workplace report, which found that women are underrepresented at every level in the corporate pipeline. They surveyed almost 30,000 people at 118 companies and found that it will take 25 years to reach gender parity at the senior vice president level and more than 100 years at the C-suite level. 100 years, that's a long time. So let's dive in a little bit deeper into your article. You write that employee attitudes play a major role in how women are viewed, and this attitude can even affect their ability to advance in the workplace. So how does the way in which females are seen and kind of understood or misunderstood by coworkers factor in? Yeah, this is really fascinating and also a bit unnerving. I found this information reading through Sheryl Sandberg's book, Lean In, and then it's recited in the McKinsey Women in the Workplace report. One of the big biases that they focus on about how how employees view other employees is the likability bias. This is famous. You might have heard about it from the Columbia Business School experiment, which used the story of real-life entrepreneur Heidi Rosen. A class of students was divided into, and half of them read her story using Heidi's name, and the other half of students read the exact same story, but the name was changed to Howard. Everything about Heidi and Howard was exactly the same, and it was interesting because at the end of the study, after the students read about Heidi and Howard and came back to discuss it, found that Howard came across as a more appealing colleague to work with. Heidi was seen as a selfish person to work with, not somebody that you would want to work with in the office. So this showcased the likability bias where success and likability are positively correlated for men and negative 
negatively correlated for women. In McKinsey report, it explained it this way. If a woman is competent, she does not seem nice enough. But if she seems nice, she is considered less competent. When a woman asserts herself, she is often called aggressive, ambitious, or out for herself. When a man does the same, he is seen as confident and strong. The McKinsey report also looked at several other biases, including performance bias. So typically male performance is often overestimated when compared to female performance, especially in industries traditionally dominated by men like security or information security. And this explains why women tend to be hired and promoted based on what they've accomplished, sort of their resume, and men are hired and promoted based on their potential for their employer. Another big bias that the reports looked at was maternal bias. So motherhood triggers that make individuals assume women are less competent and committed to their careers. One McKinsey report that I read from 2012 looked at this in depth and it had an example of this one organization. They had an opening and there was a woman who was highly qualified for the job. She was sort of running their operations in Asia, but the leader, the person who would be in charge of hiring for this open position, presumed that this woman wouldn't be interested in a job promotion because she was pregnant, despite the fact that she was highly qualified. So she was never even considered for the position. That's all incredibly interesting stuff. And it wasn't just the studies where you found information like this. You had a real life source talk to you pretty candidly about her experience as a woman in the cybersecurity field. And tell us about her meeting her at the RSA conference in San Francisco and what you guys discussed. Yeah, when I was at the RSA conference, I had the opportunity to meet and talk with Andrea Limbago. Uh, she's a principal social scientist at, at Endgame. They're a software developer, and she has a background in national security and working for the federal government. And so I talked to her a lot about sort of her experience being in the security field, typically very male-dominated environment. And one of the things that we talked about was the fact that in her role, it's very unusual to go to something and be in a room surrounded by women. Typically, you know, you're used to kind of being the one woman or one of a handful of women in a room surrounded by men. So she said that's very unusual. It's starting to change a little bit where you'll see more and more women at events, at conferences, but it's still very heavily male-dominated. And we also talked a lot about some of the changes and things that Endgame has made because it's very committed to hiring a diverse workforce, including hiring lots of women for its staff. And so Andrea, she talked about, she's gone through and done audits of Endgame's website, making sure that it has pictures of the kind of people that it would expect to hire, so diverse candidates, that in their job descriptions for hiring that they're using the appropriate pronouns. Instead of using the pronoun like he or his, making sure that they're neutral pronouns so that it doesn't seem like this position is targeted towards a male audience, that women are encouraged to apply. And another big thing we talked about was the need for flexible workplace hours. I mean, these benefit men and women. So having the option of you can work, you know, nine to five, 10 to six, that you have the option to telecommute, work from home when necessary so that there's more flexibility, you know, and this is good for, for young employees who might not want to come into the office early in the morning. I would be one of those people. Or for people who have kids and need to go and pick them up at the end of the day, which in a lot of cases for men and women, sort of splitting childcare and parent responsibilities, that's a big concern. And so knowing that your employer is flexible and willing to work with you is very attractive to women and is not only attractive during the hiring process, but it also helps retain them and keeps them in the workforce. Yes, Andrea brought up a lot of good points. And is there anything else that your sources said or the reports that can be done to kind of help remedy these issues? Yeah, I'm glad that you asked that, Holly, because that was one major topic that I talked with all of my sources about. And they all had good suggestions for what 
employers can do. One person, Lisa Foreman Jiggets, she's the founder and CEO of Women's Society of Cyber Jutsu. They're based in DC and they have different chapters throughout and they sort of exist to support women in cybersecurity. One recommendation she had for job descriptions when companies are looking to hire people is to make sure that employers are realistic in what they're looking for. So put sort of the bare minimum of what this person actually needs to do. Don't make it a giant wish list of all the things that you would love this employee to do. This will help encourage women to apply for jobs as women tend to not apply for jobs unless they meet all of the criteria. She also suggested creating mentoring programs, so either a formal program at work or encouraging voluntary mentoring, as women often don't have access to the same kinds of opportunities as men just because there are fewer of them in senior positions. She also suggested creating a women's support platform that's open to men that can help introduce them to senior leaders and other departments, you know, sort of help women make connections across the company and better understand the company as a whole, which will make them a much more valuable employee. I also, when I was putting together this piece, reached out to.org, Cheryl Sandberg's nonprofit, for recommendations on how managers can help close the gender gap. Unfortunately, they were not able to give me an interview, but they did send over lots of great tips that are available on their website that managers can use to make sure that they're evaluating female employees fairly. So one thing they recommend is obviously challenging the likability penalty that we discussed earlier with the likability bias. When a position opens up in their workforce and both qualified men and women have applied for the job, leanin.org suggests asking, who are you more likely to support and promote? The man with high marks across the board or the woman who has equally high marks but is just not as well liked. And it recommends that managers listen for bias language, such as bossy, pushy, and shrill, and asks others if they would have had the same reaction if a man did the same thing. Leanin also recommends evaluating performance fairly. This is because male performance tends to be overestimated compared to female performance. To prevent this from unfairly swaying employee reviews, managers should be specific about what constitutes excellent performance and make sure that their goals are set in advance, understood, and measurable. And one big thing that Lean In says is to make negotiating a norm. During salary negotiations or reviews, women are less likely to negotiate for themselves than men because they're concerned they'll be viewed unfavorably. We've heard a lot about this in Hollywood, but this is something that can be done across the board where managers should review compensation to ensure that women and men are being paid fairly. And should also communicate that it's important for everyone to negotiate for themselves. Well, Megan, thank you for sharing all this with us. And I know you couldn't fit quite everything into the article. So we're happy that you could come and share some of the additional information. Thank you so much. Thanks for having me, Holly. The CSO Roundtable at ASIS International is evolving. And with a new vision and mission comes a new name. The CSO Roundtable is now the CSO Center for Leadership and Development. Don Tausig, CPP, Director of Global Security for Lando Lakes Incorporated, is here to tell us more about the rebranding and the value of the CSO Center for those eligible to join. Hi, Don. Welcome to the podcast. Thank you. Thank you for having me today. Thank you for being here. And as I mentioned in the intro, the CSO Roundtable has been around since 2008. So why was this the time that they decided to create a new name, vision, and mission? Well, you know, change is constant. And how we adapt to changes really defines who we are, whether it's us as individuals or if it's us as organizations. And we need to evolve. The world threat is changing, and therefore organizations need to change to adapt to the threats, especially for those that have to manage the mitigation of those threats that are evolving. The CSO Center is really all about contributing and uh, supporting the leaders of the security industry 
And so we wanted to reach a broader audience. And so it was time to rebrand, time to change. And it's an exciting journey we're on. And we're looking forward to rolling this out and getting new members and getting people excited to join our organization. Can you share with us some of the benefits for the members who join the CSO Center for Leadership and Development? Great question. Thank you. Let me use my personal self. I'm one of the original members of the CSO Roundtable. Back in 2008, I was one of the very first members, and it's been an exciting ride for me. Uh, Most importantly was the ability to network and ability to to have critical discussions with uh, my peers, and this is part of the change. We now have to bring in a wider audience and really work on the next generation of uh, members. So what's in it for a potential member? It's ability to network. It's ability to increase and represent present on a wider industry basis. Some of the benefits is to ask questions when there's change within somebody's organizations through surveys, industry research, and really it's all about a collaborative venture across the industry. It keeps us connected. Just like in our organizations, we need to be connected to our business units. This keeps us connected with each other across different companies and being able to share best practices and ideals. So, Don, how is the CSO Center for Leadership and Development helping to foster the next generation of leaders in this space? Well, you ask all these good questions. Let's look where we've been. The CSO Roundtable has always been seen as an exclusive club for CSO. We have evolved. We have grown into a new organization that does and offers much more. We are really, as leaders in, the, in our organization, responsible for the next generations of uh, security leaders. And really, the CSO Center is what it's all about. It's about education. It's about development of that next leadership. So with that in mind, we have to broaden the organization to bring in new members and not be just an exclusive club for CSOs. We're an exclusive club really for leaders in the security industry, whether you're a CSO or you provide leadership somewhere else in our industry. Really, the emphasis for us is within our respective organizations is our direct reports, those people that are going to step into our shoes when we move on. While we can have direct interaction with them in our workplace, this is about bringing in perspective from other organizations, not just for us, but we need to have that benefit for everybody within our organization that's in a leadership organization. And the new structure allows for that to happen. And finally, what are some of the biggest challenges that CSOs and their direct reports are facing in today's landscape, and how are they grappling with those? Well, security professionals, by the nature of our industry, we're so busy being operational. We sometimes don't have the time to step back and be tactical about our own careers and about our industry. Uh, The CSO Center allows us to kind of take a step back once in a while, reconnect with our industry, and learn from other people's mistakes. I think with our respective organizations, what really counts is not what's important in the security department. It's what's important in our business units that we support. Similarly, we need to see what's affecting our entire industry. And we're a better place to do it than the CSO Center for Leadership and Development. And its key is on leadership. And let me underscore development. And by bringing in the younger talent, making the doors available, we kind of broaden the conversations with that next generation that I alluded to before. So the challenge is really to invite as many people to be part of the discussions and part of the development. And as we started this discussion, the threat is changing. They're going to continue to change. And we need to change the way we manage this industry. Well, thank you so much for stopping by and sharing all of this with us. And we'll provide some information for people if they want to get in touch with the CSO folks. Thank you so much.
Thank you for having me. It's an exciting time to be a CSO. And again, thanks for having me here today. And for more information on the CSO Center for Leadership and Development, visit www.csocenter.org. That does it for this month's episode. Be sure to subscribe to us on SoundCloud or iTunes so that you don't miss any material. Once again, I'm your host, Assistant Editor Holly Gilbert-Stowell. Thanks for tuning in. Bye-bye.